Well, are you in trouble this morning? We all know what it means to be in trouble. You are in trouble were familiar words to me as a child. I suppose they were familiar words to you. And some of you may say, day in and day out, you are in trouble to a child. And they were familiar words inside my own head growing up. When you know you're in a place you shouldn't be, but especially when you know you've done something that you shouldn't have done. Sometimes it's big trouble, sometimes it's deep, deep trouble, sometimes it's just deep trouble. There are different degrees of trouble, and there are different kinds of trouble as well. There's physical trouble. Some of you don't like to go to the hospital. It's because you don't want to hear what they're going to say. A 70-year-old woman from Texas recently uh, went to the doctor after 10 years. 10 years ago, she felt uh, growth and It had turned into, by now, a 56-pound tumor, the weight of a seven-year-old child. Well, she's okay with doctors now, and she feels great. But it's not just patients who don't like the truth, neither do doctors. Studies have shown that uh, doctors, to no surprise, don't like giving bad news. Uh, There's a study I read this week that actually showed that sometimes they let you kind of find out uh, on your own if the prognosis is bad and... And uh, there's nothing they can do about it. Um, Like if you're paralyzed from the waist down, maybe they would let you figure that out uh, and then talk with you. So we're afraid of bad news, giving it, receiving it. That's not a generalization on all doctors. I don't know the ins and outs of how that should work, but the uh, the point is worth making. It illustrates a point. And we don't usually have a problem admitting we have physical trouble, do we? I mean, if you were a kid and you fell... My observation in watching young children is that they have no problem letting you know when they're hurt. And if you got in a car accident, you'd have no problem telling the doctor where you're hurt so he can help, he or she can help. But then there's spiritual trouble, and this is more complicated than physical trouble. Physical problems are a problem with our body, but spiritual problems are a problem with us. But Jesus, Jesus, the great physician, was very upfront. Do you remember these words? Matthew 20, 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that's a problem. To be in trouble with God is trouble indeed. For all the worrying we do about our bodies, not only can he do with our bodies whatever he will, but he can throw both our body and our soul into hell for an eternity of torment. I recently came by a book by a so-called Christian author, uh, who attempts to make the point that Jesus didn't talk about hell much, and when he does, he's really talking about the hell that we create for ourselves on earth as we set up barriers between one another, especially barriers between the rich and the poor. Shouldn't we be more concerned about life, the life God has given us now, than than the next? He didn't deny hell, but he denied that it matters at all, and that's nonsense. Thankfully, God knows us better than we do, and he tells us about us. Eternity is set in our hearts, so we want to live forever. We know that God is there because he's made himself, his power, and his divine nature clear in creation. We pretend he's not there because his glory intrudes on our space. We're like children living in a home furnished by our parents, eating from the fridge stocked by our parents, and just ignoring every word they say, and that they even exist, and yet they're there. God says we are lifelong slaves to a fear of death. So whether you admit it or not, it is true, and the Bible says so. In other words, God is God. We are all troublemakers. We are in a heap of trouble, and every human person deep down knows it. But exactly what kind of spiritual trouble are we in? God can throw our body and soul into hell, but would he do that? And why would he do that? And is there anything that we can do about it if he would? The question of what kind of trouble we are in gets at the bottom of a lot of things. It gets at the bottom of why we're gathered here this morning and why we gather every Sunday morning. It gets at the bottom of what the point of the cross is, what Christianity is all about, what the church and our mission is all about. And thankfully, God knows exactly what our spiritual problem is. And thankfully, he is very forthright with us about our problem. And thankfully, he comes to us in the Bible with a solution that is as good as he is. So what kind of spiritual trouble are we in? Let's let that question hover 
over our minds and our Bibles as we open them up now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, please open there with me. It's about in the middle of your New Testament. The title of this sermon is, The Heart of the Gospel, What God Requires, God Provides. And our text this morning will be just one verse from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. But while this verse is the subject of our sermon, we'll begin by reading verses 14 through 21 from chapter 5 together. In this context, Paul is explaining the motive, the purpose, and the basis for his ministry. And before we get into our outline, we'll read this and unpack it, and then unpack verse 21 specifically. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now in this section, as I said, Paul is explaining the motive, the purpose, and the basis of his ministry as an apostle. The motive of his ministry is the love of Christ. Verse 14, he says that the love of Christ controls him. In response to a possible accusation of self-promotion, Paul indicates that his true and proper motive is the controlling love of Christ that spills over in the love for God's people and specifically his readers. The purpose of his ministry is that of reconciliation. He identifies himself and the apostles as ambassadors speaking on behalf of Christ and pleading with people to be reconciled with God. Reconciliation, of course, involves bringing two parties that are at odds with one another together. It assumes a broken relationship. I have heard of such a thing, but have never experienced a broken relationship. I have hundreds of friends on Facebook. That is not true. In our relationship to God, we're the only real offending party. We're born enemies of God and we're cool with that, so says the Bible. We are children of wrath. In our relationship to God, we are the only real offending party. And the basis for Paul's ministry is the work of Christ on the cross. His purpose is that of reconciliation. His motive is the love of Christ. And the basis is the work of Christ on the cross. Grounding his motive, did you see this? Paul said, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The cross is the ground of his motive. And he grounds his purpose of reconciliation in the cross work of Christ as well. It's how reconciliation is possible in the first place. Christ, God, is not counting the sins of sinners against them in Jesus. So Paul's ministry is not a ministry of self-promotion. His only boast is Christ, and this is what he is all about. And he's making that clear. Now, it could not be clearer to us that the gospel is paramount in the Christian life, right? In the heart, it's the very heart of Christianity. This is why references to the death of Christ are just strung throughout the New Testament. And these 10 verses are certainly no exception. But what makes the, the good news possible? What exactly happened on the cross? Paul says here that if we're in Christ, we're a new creation made new by God. But how is that possible? What is it about being in Christ that makes that possible? He says that in Christ, God is reconciling people to himself. But how is that possible? Is God simply looking over their sins, letting bygones be bygones? Can he do that and be good? If so, then why bust out a cross and die on it? Why a cross? 
Reconciliation with God, to be sure, is what is good about the good news. Nothing is good about the gospel if it is not reconciliation with God that it brings about. But how does it bring that about? How does the cross relate to that reconciliation? We can just say Jesus is the solution. He's the answer. But that's not enough. There are some who would say that the main thing about Jesus' death was that he was an example of love for us. But do not be fooled. He was an example of love. But why is it loving? And what is loving about dying on a cross? Was there another way? Some would say the main thing about Jesus was that he was there defeating Satan. Don't be fooled. Yes, Jesus defeats Satan on the cross. But how? How is Satan shamed and put down through Jesus' work on the cross? And why would it take a cross? More importantly, what does the Bible specifically teach about what's happening on the cross? Is the main problem really a problem between us and us that we need a compelling example to follow and be motivated to be different? Problem solved? Or is it a problem between us and Satan, like he's got us and God has to pay him off or defeat him so that we're free and then we can be with God? Or is it a problem between us and God that the cross is solving? How does the cross bring about reconciliation with God? What kind of trouble are we in? Well, after a string of references to Jesus' work, we find the answer now in our verse for the morning, verse 21, where Paul gives us the final basis for everything he's said. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this may be the single most focused explanation in the New Testament of how the cross saves us. There are many other explanations. It's interesting that Paul says the same thing over and over and over again. The New Testament does, but never in the same way. He's not a mantra guy, and the New Testament isn't a mantra book. But there is no other spot in the Bible in which we have such a focused, in such a short space, a focused explanation of what the cross actually accomplished, what it did. If the gospel is at the heart of Christianity, and it certainly is, then this verse and the truth of this verse is at the heart, the very heart of the gospel. There are many benefits of the gospel. There are many motivations for the Christian life. But this heart of the gospel is pumping blood to all of those vital Organs. It is the flux capacitor of the Christian life. And there is no good news without it. It makes it go. We've spent some time exploring the context of the passage, verse 21 now, and now we'll turn to just look at this verse and unpack it. We're going to unpack this verse with a wide-angle lens, kind of looking at it in focus here with the whole Bible behind it. Because, after all, the whole Bible is behind this quick statement that Paul makes. He's assuming the whole Bible's teaching about God, sin, salvation, and Christ. Well, staring at the sun is a bad idea. And we were reminded this recently, weren't we, with the eclipse? Did you see the eclipse? Isn't that cool? hope you didn't see it for too long. I looked at it for not too long, but long enough that As I looked around, I could see a ring of fire following me. It's almost terrifying. And it's gone now. But staring at the hot center of the cross is just fine. And we're going to do it this morning. And it will have a certain effect on our vision, our spiritual vision, in a very, very good way. It'll give us a clearer vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It'll protect us against false doctrines. So many doctrines are touching this. The doctrine of God, what what he's like. The doctrine of sin, what we're like. The doctrine of hell, afterlife. The doctrine of Christ, who he was. The doctrine of salvation, the list continues. It'll help us spot pseudo-Christianities, false religions, cults, that hijack Jesus, that all go wrong first, right here at the middle. It'll help us get clear on what God has done for us as Christians so we don't forget the gospel and drift from it. It'll make us better evangelists so that our message is more clear and not confused. 
And we will see that the heart of the gospel is the unfathomably, unfathomably wonderful truth that what God requires, God provides. Or in the words of Jonah from the belly of the fish, salvation is of the Lord. Or in the words of the reformers, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so staring into the hot center of the cross will lead our hearts to boast in the Lord and not ourselves. For our salvation is all of God. Well, the sermon will unfold in two points from here. So two points that follow the shape of the text. Small verse. You can just stare at the verse for the rest of the sermon if you like. First point, point will focus on Jesus' passive work of dying and suffering in our place. And the second point will focus on Jesus' active work of living and obeying in our place. And each point will have two halves. The first half will address the need that is assumed by that part of the verse. And the second half will address the way that God addressed us in our need and what he did to provide for it. So what kind of trouble are we in? We are in trouble with God, born that way. The first reason we're in trouble with God, and so our first point, is that God requires death for sin. God requires death for sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to understand what the first part of that verse means, we need to understand what sin is and what sin deserves. That God requires death for sin is clear from the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, um, sin and death is the thing that humans are most famous for after being created in God's image. And the story of the Old Testament is largely the story of sin and of death. The very first words of God to a human being, Adam, even before Eve was made, were recorded in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day of it that you eat, you shall surely die. Well, someone who makes the world and everything in it and gives it all to you is not stingy, especially if they proceed to hand make a wife for you. But Adam wasn't so sure. Adam couldn't have been given more, and he couldn't have been trusted with more. He had everything he could have wanted except what would kill him if he wanted that too. But no sooner than he was given the command, do we read that he breaks it? He believed with Eve, his wife, the serpent over God, when the serpent suggested that God was withholding something from them, that he was not good, and that they would be like him if they ate. The Bible's word for what happened right there is called sin. They did not believe what God said. They did not trust he was good. And they did not want him to be who he was. They did not want God to be God. And what happened next? Well, exactly what God said would happen. They began that day to die. They were immediately ashamed. They hid from one another and they hid from God. New feelings of shame, of being in trouble. And the effects of Adam's sin are still with us. We're born guilty and we're born polluted. Sin is our default mode. We live with shame, we hide from one another, and we hide with our lives even from God. The New Testament says in Romans 5.12, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So that God requires death for sin is clear from the very beginning of the Bible. And it is also clear from the story of Noah. No telling of the story of Noah's ark, by the way, is right if it does not communicate the just judgment of God and the wickedness of humanity. Remember how it begins in Genesis 6? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. But graciously, God came to Noah, gave him instructions for the construction of an ark that would preserve some animals and his family through a brutal storm when he opened heaven's hydrants and dumped heaven's bathtub all over the earth and destroyed everything and everyone except what was on that ark. And there is a redemptive point to the story, but the first takeaway is that God judges sin with death. So that God requires death for sin is clear from the story of Adam, of Noah, and clear from God's dealings with Israel. Through Israel's law, as a theocracy, her law reflected the moral character of God. And there were death for certain sins. 
as Israel was not reflecting the holiness of their holy God and king and ruler as a nation. Through God's use of Israel to execute judgment on other nations, God's requirement of death for sin was clear. Through God's refusal to let a generation of Israelites enter the promised land because she would not trust God, letting them die in the wilderness. Through the many cursings that God promised to Israel for disobedience. God made Israel's options quite simple. They were two, according to Deuteronomy 30, one desirable and one undesirable. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I will declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Two options. And because every Israelite is a descendant of Adam, the general pattern of disobedience and death litter the story. It is as, it is as if the Old Testament is written on a canvas, a canvas of sin. There are different pictures we get in the Bible for this idea of sin. Sin's stupid. Jeremiah tells us that it's like drinking from a broken cistern that holds no water. It's a picture of how sin says God isn't satisfying or good. Sin is treasonous. Paul says it's like stealing from God, taking his crown. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. It's a picture of how sin says that God is not true and he is not great. And sin is disqualifying. One word for sin actually means missing the mark. Notice that this way of thinking about God as well is God-centered through and through. There's a quote I, I found about 10 years ago in college, and I just stared at it for about a half an hour. Um, by John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, Defining Sin. I printed it out and stuck it on my dorm room wall. What is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. And the commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. The person of God not loved. That is sin. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28? And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That is the kind of trouble we're in. God can throw us straight into hell. And he should if he is good and if he is just. Hell is not what we make of this world because we're misfits. Hell is not something that Satan drags us into, but that God grieves to watch, though he does grieve this. Hell is a place that God sends those who have rejected him to suffer under his wrath. And Jesus, the great physician, spoke frankly to us about it. He spoke of hell often, of a place beyond our physical death, where all you will hear is your own the, the sound of yourself and others weeping and gnashing their teeth. And in this way, the New Testament pulls back the curtain on what God meant when he spoke to Adam and promised him that in the day he disobeyed, he would surely die. Now, this notion of sin might be abhorrent to you, but consider that sin itself is just a three-letter word that means something abhorrent. We all have an abhorrent detector, and each in our own mind, we are right to call what is abhorrent, abhorrent, and we are wrong not to. Likewise, the idea of a wrathful God may be troublesome to you. I won't say that it doesn't trouble any sinner. But consider that anyone who believes anything is right or wrong or good or bad is a wrathful person. And the more personal an offense against those 
is against our moral intuition, the more wrathful we become. If we're offended or stolen from or physically violated or someone that we love is physically violated, we had better turn in wrath. All of this is a little reflection, albeit imperfect, of God's own righteous anger, his wrath against sin. He has a perfect abhorrence detector. It's not conditioned by cultural whims or moods or the age or the place that he lives. He's over all and he made all. It's not perverted, it is good and is right. God is against what is wrong, what is bad, what perverts the good, what disgraces the beautiful. God's wrath is not a function of his bad mood like the gods of the ancient Near East who were petty, who were many, jealous of one another for territory and you had to serve them with offerings and sacrifices and guests at what might appease them? No, God is just and right and good and consistent with his holiness. Admitting that sin is a problem and that God requires death for sin puts us, though we should admit, in an utterly impossible situation because there's nothing we can do about it, right? We just need forgive. We just need God who we've offended to forgive us. We need the sin to be made to go away. Folks, nothing is more serious than this. If you are outside of Christ this morning, you're dangling over the fires of hell and you're a breath away from God's wrath. But there is good news. And that is, what God requires, God provides in Jesus Christ. God requires death for sin and God put our sin on Christ. It's the second half of our first point. God requires death for sin, and God put our sin on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And having done so, he did what was required to make the forgiveness of sins possible. This is how it is possible for a sinner to stand eternally safe in the otherwise unapproachable presence of God, and it is good news. This week, uh, our administrative pastor, Ron, led our staff in a puzzle exercise. On the wall, he projected one of those problem-solving puzzle things you can get on the internet. Um, This one was a picture of a table against a wall and had a candle on it and a box of tacks. Um, I think that was it. A A book of matches. That's right, a book of matches. That's why it's good to have a manuscript. You don't want to forget one of the pieces of your puzzle. The question was, how can you fix the candle to the wall, light the candle, and keep it from dripping on the table? And there were a variety of brilliant answers in the room. They all came very quick, a testimony to the brilliance of your church staff. (laughs) Drew Hodge was very creative, your minister of music, who stood right there only a few minutes ago. He said, punch a hole in the wall, stick the candle in it, then move the table. Great idea. Punching a hole in the wall is easier for some than others. It's easier for Drew than it is for me. And there were other creative answers. Puzzles are fun if you've got the time, if you're not too busy, and if your friends are doing it. Puzzles are fun. Christy loves puzzles. I don't like puzzles. Sometimes we'll do a puzzle, and I'll check out, and she'll finish it. She can't go to bed until it's done. I think it's insane. Um, so I buy, her, I buy her puzzles, and she enjoys them. But some puzzles do matter. Surgery is a puzzle. I'm not a, I'm not a surgeon. You have some pieces, you have a body, you have instruments, you got monitors, and you got the clock, and you have a goal, and you got to make it happen. The puzzle of how to solve the problem of death is a puzzle of infinite consequence. What is at stake is both the body and the soul. And the solution to the puzzle of how you or I can escape the terrible fury of God's wrath must include the removal of our sin. Somehow, our sin, all of it, must simply go away. It must be taken away. And yet, God must remain just. Solve that. No mere man can take it from us. Mere men are born of Adam. And they have their own sin to deal with. And yet, only a man can take it from us. Since if he's to take it, he must represent us. And so, God's word says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Notice with me three things. Three things about this short line. Notice that God takes the initiative. For our sake, he made him to be no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
If the problem is to be solved, it will have to be. The problem of death to be solved, it will have to be because God steps in. There's nothing we can do about it. This reminds us of Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. Two of the most important words in the Bible. In a sense, it's the story of the whole Bible. Even, the old, even as the Old Testament is a story of sin and death, the reason there's a story beyond the first sin and a story beyond the first death is because God has intervened for our sake. After Adam fell into sin, God made a promise to the serpent that a son of Eve would crush his head. And God will keep that promise. A son of Eve will crush the serpent's head. Then God clothed the couple, the couple and he gave him a child. They are dying, but for now they're alive and having children with God's help. And from Eve will come the one who will undo the mess. That's God's doing. That is not our doing. That is not Adam's doing. That is not Eve's doing. God is taking the initiative. Second, notice that Christ knew no sin. Jesus was a man, but he was not just another man. He was born of a virgin, signaling that he would not come from the race of Adam, but would be a new kind of man, a new Adam, not stained with sin, not guilty. Pilate, who sent Jesus to crucifixion, recognized Jesus' innocence, even if it wasn't worth it to him to let him go and serve justice. Rather, he pleased the crowd. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says this of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, our great high priest, in every respect, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So God always takes the initiative, and he must. Christ knew no sin. And notice that Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for our sake. And this is another way of saying Jesus died on the cross that gets at what was happening in his death. In saying that he made Jesus to be sin, he doesn't mean that he made Jesus a sin, or that he made Jesus a sinner, but that he placed the full weight and punishment and the guilt of sin's On him for those for whom he was dying. He died as a substitute. He died for us. He died in our place. And this little verse here, this little idea, is the tip of the iceberg of the entire Bible. The Old Testament is written on a canvas woven with sin, but a canvas woven also with the promises of God for salvation through a substitute. Here's where we see it. That God would provide a substitute to die in the place of sinners is hinted at in the early chapters of the Bible. After they sinned, God saw Adam, sorry, Adam saw God kill an animal, take its skin, and make some, make some coverings for them to cover their shame. After Abraham's promised son was finally born, God tells him to kill his son. And then right as he's about to do it, obeying God, proving that he believes God and has faith, God provides a ram to be killed in his place. That God would provide a substitute to die in the place of sinners is dramatically pictured in the story of the Exodus and the Passover. God's people were slaves in Egypt. God forced the hand of the Egyptian pharaoh to let them go by sending an angel of death to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. Well, so that that Israel's firstborn would be spared, God gave Moses specific instructions for his people. On the evening of God's judgment, they were to kill a lamb and mark their doorpost with its blood so that the angel of death would pass over. And even before the event actually took place, right, and baked within the instructions are instructions for how they're supposed to celebrate this down through the generations and remember what God has done. The takeaway is this. Israel was subject to the same judgment as were the Egyptians, but God provided a sacrifice, a substitute, to protect them from death. It's not like God didn't know where they lived, and so he needed to look at the doorpost. The angel of death needed some help. No, God was teaching his people something. Recently read a uh, same guy referenced earlier, the story of the story of the Bible moves right through the Exodus without mentioning the Passover, except to say it was a way that God's people could remember how God delivered them. In the garden, in the fall, in the exodus, and even at the cross, there isn't a mention of sin or judgment. Getting the heart of the gospel will protect you from being taken by false biblical stories. 
Sometimes, in the name of telling the story of the Bible, some folks who are embarrassed about the heart of, and the foolish and the weak part of the gospel will hide it, will not mention it, in the name of being narrative like the Bible. Be careful. That God would provide a substitute to die in the place of sinners is also foreshadowed in Israel's priesthood and sacrificial system that followed after. You may be familiar with the book of Leviticus. If you've done a Bible reading plan, you may have said, oh, I'm in the book of Leviticus. It's so repetitious. Uh, I've probably said that. I've heard that before. It's understandable. It's quite repetitious. But it's all about how the Israelites were to maintain their relationship with God by atoning for sins with the sacrifice of animals over and over. And the point is, sin deserves death. God provides a sacrifice, a substitute for you. And that God would provide a substitute to die in the place of sinners is promised through Isaiah's prophecy of an innocent Israelite who will come and suffer in the place of Israel for their sins. The sacrificial system was inadequate to take care of the problem of sin. It was built in inadequacy, all the repetition. It didn't cover it all. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6 speaks of no inadequate sacrifice. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's in the Old Testament. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. And that Jesus would be a substitute was on Jesus' own lips throughout his ministry, but most vividly when he was holding bread on the night that he and his disciples were celebrating the Passover, when he said, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And do you remember the blessings and cursings that we read about? Paul says in Galatians that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God sets out life and death, blessing and curse. Israel chooses curse. We all sin. We choose curse. Jesus becomes a curse for us, and he removes the curse. He removes the curse of death. And the author of Hebrews says that in Hebrews 7, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So if you've thought that the Old Testament priesthood was abstract, irrelevant maybe, distant from our current experience of life and world, It may be foreign in its imagery, but it is not any of that. God is just, and so he requires death for sin. God is loving, so he provides a substitute. God is patient, so he accepts for a time imperfect sacrifices. But God is faithful to his promise, and so he sends Christ who offers uh, offers up the sacrifice of himself for our sins. What relevance there is in a book like Leviticus. And so, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And this, we should note, is legal language. Not counting their trespasses against them. And if that feels chilly or impersonal, remember that the debts on the ledger were not impersonal. They were a stealing of God's glory. And remember that it was not impersonal for God to send his only son to die for those who would believe in him so they would not perish. Don't be fooled. Our problem is not that we need a good and compelling example. Jesus provides an example for us, but he does so by loving us on the cross as he dies for our sins. And don't be fooled. We need more than just for Satan to be defeated and dealt with. We're our own enemy. We're at odds with God, and we're under his wrath, and the cross takes it away. And the author of Hebrews says tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. He does. But the devil's defeat was precisely through God's salvation of his people, through Jesus who suffered for the sins of his people. God defeats the devil. He crushes the head of the serpent. But it happens through his death 
in the place of sinners, thereby winning them to himself, reconciling them to himself. So Christianity lets us have it both ways. We can say that evil is truly evil without the conflicting interest of our need to be clear of guilt. We're guilty, and we can say we're guilty, and yet we have certain hope. No other religion lets you do this. It lets you say with Paul in Romans 7, 24 through 8, 1, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And in the next breath, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for those who are subject to lifelong slavery, to a fear of death, this is very good news. God requires death for sin and God put our sin on Christ. That's the first point. But our need for our sins to be removed is not our only problem in this trouble we have with God. The first point of the sermon addressed the problem assumed by the first half of our verse. God requires death for sin and the good news is that God provides what he requires. The second part of the sermon addresses the problem assumed by the second half of the verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God requires death for sin, and second, God also requires righteousness. God requires righteousness. That is a righteous life, perfect obedience To stand acceptable before God, we need more than a clean slate. We need a slate that sparkles, a slate with bling. A slate covered with the artwork of a beautifully and wonderfully obedient life wherein every thought, word, and deed was done to the praise of God's glory. It requires more than just our sins to be canceled, but to be replaced by God-loving and God-glorifying obedience. And praise be to God that here as well what God requires, God provides. But before we explore what it means that in him we might become the righteousness of God, let's consider how God has always required righteousness and obedience from those who are his. God required obedience from Adam. Remember, God gave Adam a number of positive commands. Be fruitful, be multiply, have dominion over everything. Then negatively, don't eat from the tree. Adam failed. He did not obey. God required obedience from Noah. Noah gets off the boat. He built the ark obeying God from faith. He gets off the boat in the new world, and God tells him to be fruitful and multiply. He has a chance to succeed where Adam failed. No go. In the next scene, uh, Noah's laying in his tent drunk and naked, and in only a few generations, his kids are not being fruitful and multiplying, but consolidating themselves and building a tower up to heaven to make a name for themselves. Noah failed. God required obedience from Abraham and his children. God says of Abraham... In Genesis 18, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And after obeying God and his willingness to take his own son's life, God says this to Abraham in Genesis 22. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God requires obedience of those even to whom he makes promises. God made a promise to Abraham to fill the earth with his descendants and to bless the nations through him. Interesting. But that promised blessing would come in concert with required obedience. The stories that follow from Abraham's line are something like from the Jerry Springer show, if you remember that. Sexual immorality, lies, family feuds, and all the rest. Abraham and his children failed. God required obedience from Moses and from Israel. With Moses and the nation of Israel, God gave very concrete, uh, God gave very, got very concrete about how they were to live. They had different kinds of laws, some that were rooted in the way he made the world. Laws concerning sexuality, for example. In Israel's law, were tied to creation order. You have laws about their civil life together as a nation, setting them apart from other nations. You have laws about how they're to maintain their relationship with God through sacrifices. The Ten Commandments were at the heart of their law, and the first and summary command begins, sounds like this. Deuteronomy 6, 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. 
Remember when Moses came down from the mountain, children of Israel had already decided that a golden calf was better than the one true and living God who delivered them from Egypt and parted the Red Sea and fed them with food from the air. But while God had shown himself exceedingly gracious to Israel, he expected obedience nonetheless. Remember the blessings and cursings we read? Here's more from that same passage. Again, simple options. One obviously is desirable, one is obviously undesirable. Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. But as her leaders went, so did Israel. Read the book of Judges. Read the books of First and Second Kings. The pattern was sin and death and curse. And God required obedience from David. Here's the job description of the king in Deuteronomy 17, even before David was king. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, and he may, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." Well, David was a man after God's own heart. And he was a man after the hearts of many women. And he was a man after his own glory. And he had a hard heart. David was not righteous as God required of the king. David had a marvelous reign, but he failed. And the kings after him did not pursue God's heart. So there's a tension in the Old Testament, isn't there? Isn't this interesting? God's making promises. He's swearing things to Abraham and his, and his children, right? He's, uh, his word's as good as he is, right? So he's making promises. But the realization and benefits of those promises are for those who obey, who are righteous. But obedience is an apparently hopeless thing for his people. So how on earth is God going to fulfill his promise if no one comes along and obeys? God requires righteousness, And praise God, the good news is what God requires, God provides. He requires righteousness, and God put Christ's righteousness on us. It's the second half of our second point. God requires righteousness, God put Christ's righteousness on us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as Peter says it in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Notice that righteousness comes through Christ. Jesus was righteous. He was the obedient one. It was his mission to be obedient. In the temptation in the wilderness, 40 days, uh, he could have turned that rock into water, but didn't. He was obedient to his father for his own reasons, but also because his mission was to be obedient in our place. He didn't take the offer of the kingdoms, but chose instead to go to a cross and suffer, obedient to his father. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He was born under the law. He glorified his father, having accomplished all that his father asked him to do. Notice that it's through union with Christ that we become righteous. In him, we become the righteousness of God. Don't miss that. We're joined to Christ. Christ is God's beloved son, and we're sons. Christ died, and we died with him. He was raised, and we're raised with him. Christ is righteous, and in him we become the righteousness of God. Romans 5 makes this this clearer than anything else. 5.17, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. You see, the cross was the culmination of Jesus' suffering for us, but it was also the culmination of his obedience for us. There he passively suffered for our sins, but he was actively obeying his father as 
Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if 2 Corinthians 5.21, our verse today, is the heart of the gospel, it has two beats. The first beat is his substitutionary death, suffering for our sins under God's wrath. And the second beat is his substitutionary life, his obedience, where he's dying there obediently. Romans 3, 20, 21 through 26 tells us that in part, God had a problem of his own to solve on the cross. And that was he had passed over sins for years. Is God unrighteous to pass over sins? No. The sins of Adam and all those who believed in God's promise were paid for on the cross. The cross was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus undid what Adam did through his suffering and through his obedience, he did what Adam was supposed to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Folks, we are not saved by good works, our good works. But we are saved by good works. We're saved by the good works of Christ. We're saved by his works that are credited to us. So how can any one of us get in on this? It's not automatic. Jesus' death and what he did there does not apply to everybody. How can we be reconciled to God through the sin-bearing and righteousness-providing death of Christ? And the Bible has one answer, and that is by faith. Faith to believe that Jesus is your only hope because you know that the problem you have is impossible for you or anyone else besides him to solve. What God requires, only he can provide, and he's done so in Christ. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. And why faith alone? Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is how God has always done it. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says that salvation does not come by working, as though you could earn it and God would pay you with his favor and presence for eternity. No, it's only by faith. And this is so that no one may boast. So why obey then? Why obey if you're already in good with God? Precisely because you are. Because you want to. You're a new creation. You're reconciled to God. You're forgiven of your sins. You stand righteousness, righteous before him. Do it because these things are true, but never as a payment, as though as a sinner you could ever earn God's favor. That is ridiculous. Only God can provide what God requires. So are you in trouble this morning? I pray that this message would not be foolishness and weakness to you, but wisdom and the power of God as one who's being saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died in our place, suffering under your wrath, suffering for our sins. And we thank you as well that he lived in our place and was obedient to you even to the point of death on a cross. This is our only hope. We praise you for providing for what you required, uh, for we could not. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.